Now, if you know anything about me, you know that I am absolutely crazy about my smoking hot wife, Lauren Hunter. I mean, seriously, she is beautiful in every single way. She's an unbelievable mom to our kids. She's a great friend who's caring and loving and sees people regardless of what they're going through. I love her with all my heart. I am so blessed to call her my wife. And I'd like to say that there is no one that I've ever dated but her. But unfortunately, in high school, I did. I dated someone. And I like to say that nothing good comes out of a high school dating relationship except what God in his goodness allows his grace to fall on. And I'm definitely gonna tell you a story of how God's grace fell on a part of this relationship. Because there was something that even though I wish that I never dated this girl, one instance, the Lord used her to teach me something that I desperately needed to learn. So her name was Katie, and one night we were out on a date. And on our way, coming back from where we had had dinner, I needed to stop and get gas. And when I went into the gas station and, and paid inside, the Lord quickly prompted me, you need to share the gospel with this cashier. And as it, it was a strong prompting from the Spirit, I knew exactly what I needed to do. I needed to share the good news of Jesus with this cashier. It was a prompting from the Holy Spirit. But in my fear, in my insecurity, I shrunk back and I chose not to do that. And as I walked out of the gas station and walked back to the car, I was overrun by guilt and by shame. And even so much to the point where I even said to Katie, I said, hey, like, I'm, I'm feeling so guilty, I blew it. Like the spirit of God prompted me to share the gospel with this person and I didn't. And so she said to me, she said, well, if you feel like you need to share with them, go in and share. And I said, no, that would just be weird at this point. I, I, I would feel too weird. So we got in the car and we left and we started heading to where we were going. And then I still couldn't escape my guilt. So I decided I would take matters into my own hands and I pulled into a Wendy's and I went through the drive through and I ordered a small Frosty. And when the, the uh, clerk there gave me the Frosty, the drive-through attendant, I paid and then said, hey, let me give you this gospel tract. It tells you how much Jesus loves you. And if you ever have some time, read it, and it'll tell you how you can put your hope and faith and trust in him. And we drove off. I grabbed my Frosty, took a bite, and I looked at Katie and I said, man, now I feel better. And in that moment, Katie said something to me that I desperately needed to hear. She said, Matt, that wasn't about that girl. That wasn't about Jesus. That was about you. You didn't share the gospel with her so that she could meet Jesus. You shared the gospel with her so that you didn't have to feel guilty, so that you could feel better about yourself. And you know what? She was right. I was putting my hope and my trust in these religious acts, this ritualism that I did, that I've have learned that I need to share the gospel with someone. But the gospel isn't for the sake of, you know, me just checking off a box so I don't feel guilty. I was treating this person like they didn't matter. They were just a means to me no longer feeling guilty. Me choosing to put my hope in what I could accomplish with my religious ritual of sharing the gospel, of sharing this gospel track, actually was something that was fake. It wasn't about the worship of God. It was about me not feeling guilty, hoping I could please him, that I could placate him because I was overruled by my guilt. In that moment, Katie called me out for my fake worship. 
And Amos is actually gonna do the exact same thing. They were putting all their hope in their religion. They were putting all their hope in their ritual acts of trying to please God, of keeping the festivals and doing all the things to try and please God. But God wasn't interested in their religion or their ability to achieve things ritualistically. He wanted their heart. And we ended chapter four with him declaring that he is the Lord God who's created everything, that he is the one almighty, all perfect, all powerful God. And they had lost their awe of him. And now as we lean into chapter five, we're gonna see Amos say that God is done with their fake worship. He wants their hearts. And because he doesn't have it, judgment is coming on them very, very soon. So with that in mind, turn your Bibles to Amos chapter five, and we'll start reading in verse one. Here's what it says. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have 10 left to the house of Israel. Right out of the gate, Amos is lamenting over Israel's state. This is a funeral song that he's singing over the people of Israel. And he creates this vivid picture of a young woman who has fallen among violent men. That's why he says what he says. He says, you've fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. There's no one to help her. There's no one that's coming to her aid. She has fallen, she is forsaken, and he is conveying this sadness of a funeral of a young woman who had all of life ahead of her to be fruitful, to experience life to the full, but doesn't get to experience that because of an untimely death. That is what Amos is declaring. This is lamenting for Israel. And really what he's declaring over them is death and destruction that's coming because of their sin, because of their rejection of the Lord. So much so that people are just gonna continue to, to fall. People are gonna continue to, to walk into death. You saw what he said in verse three, that the city that would send out a thousand shall have a hundred left. And then in a turn, when they turn, send out those a hundred, now only 10 would be left. This once mighty grand army of Israel was gonna be decimated all the way down to only 10. Very few would be left. And what is, he's portraying is this destruction that was gonna come through the armies of Assyria. He's predicting this. But what you can definitely see is that God is speaking death over them because of their disobedience, because of their sin. But yet even in this declaration, even this lament, right away God is merciful. And he gives them a way that if they would just choose to repent and to return back to him, that they can live. That's exactly what it says in verse four. Look at what it says next in verse four through nine. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion 
and turns deep darkness into morning and darkness the day into night. Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth? The Lord is his name. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress? Did you hear how powerful what he says in verse four? Thus says the Lord, seek me and you'll live. I mean, Israel is ripe for judgment. They are ripe for destruction to come on them from the Lord. And yet these unbelievable words are spoken. Just seek me and you will live. And what God is asking them to do is to seek him exclusively. He was tired of their duplicity. He was tired of them going after other gods. He wanted their heart. He didn't want the religious acts and all the things that they were able to keep with the festivals. He wanted their heart. That's why after he says, seek me and you'll live, he's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to return solely to him exclusively. That's why he says, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal. He's saying, don't go to these places where you've set up these temple, these temples and you've worshiped all these other gods. You have to seek me exclusively. You know, one of the things that's so heartbreaking about what was going on at Bethel and Gilgal is that these are two places that actually had rich history, spiritual heritage in Israel's relationship with the Lord. It was, it was in Bethel where God met Jacob and he established and reminded him of the covenant that he had made with Abraham and that he was gonna be with Jacob and that he was going to bring Israel into the promised land. And it was in Gilgal where God removed the reproach of Egypt from Israel and he told Joshua to have all the men that hadn't been circumcised to be, circum to be circumcised, which was a sign of the covenant that God had made with Israel. These two places that were significant, that should have been reminders of what God had done, how he had been faithful, how he had established his covenant with Israel, how he had set them apart to be a people of his own possession, had actually become places that were full of injustice, full of idolatry, and even worse, wasn't just the idolatry and the false worship that was going on in these temples and these places in Gilgal and Bethel, but all around them, they were practicing injustice. They were oppressing the poor. They were rejecting the needy and God had had enough of it. And right here in this little section of five verses, we see God separate and he changes the pace. Verse four through seven is how, is, is how Israel wasn't living up to expectations. It's telling them what they needed to do and what they hadn't done. But now all of a sudden in verse eight through nine, God again says, this is who I am. Because you've rejected my justice, you've rejected who I am, and I am going to show you that I am the Lord. That's why he says what he says in verse seven. He says, oh, you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. This wormwood, it was described a, a spoiled fruit. And so what God is saying is, you've taken the justice that I have shown you. I'm a perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly righteous God. And you've known me and you should walk in that. But you've taken my justice and you've spoiled it. And righteousness has come down to the earth. Like you, it's, it's as good as dead to you. And I'm the God of justice and righteousness and you have completely forsaken that. It's been spoiled and been cast down from you. 
And so I have to remind you who I am. The God who put the constellations in the sky and is able to bring a flash destruction on the strongest fortress is now gonna flash destruction on you because you've rejected who I am and you've rejected my calling for you to be a people that walk in justice and righteousness. You're not seeking me and living. You've chosen to go after idolatry and false gods. And so that's why he says what he says next in verse 10. Look at what he says, verse 10 through 13. He says, they hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor, abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell on them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time for it is an evil time. He's showing and exposing what the true condition of Israel's heart was. And he's exposing that based on their actions. You know, if you really think about it, the things that we do give evidence to what's truly in our heart. Everything that we do is an overflow of our heart. And he's exposing the, the callousness and the condition of Israel's heart by exposing their actions. He said, you hate people who speak the truth. You trample on the poor. You afflict the righteous. You're so, you're so evil, you'll do whatever it, it, you have to, to to get, to gain and to get more. You take a bribe. You're so evil. He's exposing the callousness and the condition of their heart. And that's why destruction is coming on them. That's why God's judgment has to rain down on them. But even still, as this, as you, in all this talk of judgment and everything that's certain that is leading up to this point throughout the whole book of Amos, that they are going to be judged, God again is so merciful. He's so good that he offers again a way for them to live. If they'll just repent, and turn back to God and choose him. Look at what he says in verse 14 through 15. He says, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Israel. Right here in this moment, even though they have practiced all of these wrong rituals, all these attempts to try and appease and placate God with trying to be as religious as they can, all the while spending their affections on everything else but him. God is reminding them of what true worship of Yahweh God is, is that it cannot be separate from how you treat people. They've been hating the poor. They've been rejecting them. They don't like people who speak truth. They, they, they abhor justice at the gate. They reject all that. And now God is telling them what true worship of him is. It cannot be disconnected from how they treat people. And that's why he says, seek good and not evil that you may live. Like if you'll just seek what is good, that means that you'll seek the one who is good the one who's created everything that is good, and that is seeking me alone. And when we seek the perfectly good God of the universe, then he begins to transform the way that we treat people. We actually begin to hate what is evil because we love him who alone is good. 
And what's gonna overflow up out of our life when we love the one who is truly good is we'll begin to hate evil. And the evidence of that was that justice will be established in our lives. It'll come, we'll stop walking in injustice and start walking in justice because we are seeking him who is good. We are trusting in the one who is good and we're loving him and he's transforming us to hate what is evil and to no longer seek those things. So God right here is offering again, he's offering repentance and a way for them to not be destroyed, a way for them to live and not just survive, but to experience abundant life in him. But I think even as he offers this and says, God may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph, Amos, he knows the people and he knows that they're gonna continue to refuse to repent. And that's why immediately, even after he offers this hope, he knows destruction is coming because these people aren't gonna return to God. And so he leans into what they're gonna receive in the day of the Lord. Look at what he says next in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares, there shall be wailing. And in all the streets, they shall say, alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards, there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if man fled from lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I mean, Israel so misunderstood who God was and what he was doing that they were so content with trying to just walk in their fake worship. They were even in, in so many ritualistic ways, some even claiming to hope for the day of the Lord. And Amos is saying, why would you hope for that? The day of the Lord isn't going to be merciful towards you. It's gonna bring destruction to you. It's not gonna be this glorious day full of light and joy. It's gonna be destruction and wailing and doom for you. That's why he says like, why are you hoping in that? It's like you're fleeing from a lion and in turn meet a bear. He wants them to understand that God's judgment of them, the day that God has for them is gonna be so widespread there is going to be so much wailing. It doesn't matter whether they're in on the highways or in the vineyards, they are going to experience wailing in Israel like never before. Where they're even gonna to have to hire professional, you know, they love to hire professional lamenters to come and, and lament, but there's no one they're gonna be able to hire. They're gonna to have to go after farmers. Say, please, someone come lament for us because the wailing and the destruction is gonna be so widespread. And they got this message clear because of the words that Amos very carefully chose in verse 17. He says that the Lord is gonna pass through your midst. This is what the Lord declared. This is a reference of the way God passed through the midst of Egypt at the Passover. This was a festival that they were continually keeping still, hoping to please God. And God is reminding them of the Passover. What happened was, is God told them that if I'm gonna pass through the land of Egypt, I'm gonna send the angel of death. 
And death is gonna come to the firstborn of every household, both Egyptian and Hebrew, unless you take the blood of a lamb and paint the doorposts of your house with the blood of the lamb. When the angel of death passes by, it'll see the blood. And instead of judgment coming to that house and death coming to that house, my judgment will pass over. And what happened that night at Passover is Egypt did not heed what the Lord had said. The Hebrews did. And God passed through the land and there was wailing in Egypt like never before. Even wailing came into Pharaoh's house at the death of his firstborn son. But God's judgment passed over Israel. And this is what God used to finally set the people free where Pharaoh finally said, I'll let your people go, get away from me because of the wailing was so intense in Egypt because of God passing through their midst. And now God is saying, listen, before I passed over you with judgment, I didn't bring judgment upon you, I passed over it and I brought judgment to Egypt. But this time, my judgment isn't gonna pass over you. I'm gonna pass through your midst just like I passed through Egypt's midst. You're going to feel my destruction because of your evil and because you're whoring after other gods, because of your fake worship of me. And so he says, woe to you. He's finished and done with their fake worship. And that's what he points to next. This is why their destruction had to come because he was done with their hypocrisy. He was done with them saying, you know, practicing, putting their hope in all these ritual acts of worship and yet rejecting him. They were putting their hope in what they could do for God instead of letting God have their hearts and yielding all that they were to him. Look at what he says next in verse 21. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath, your king, and Caan, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. You guys, God didn't want their rituals he wanted their hearts. And that's why he says what he says about all the things that they were doing, all of the feasts, all of their solemn assemblies, their grain offerings, their peace offerings, even their worship and music. He says, I hate, I despise, I take no delight. I will not accept them. I will not look upon them. I will not listen. He is rejecting every religious act that they had ever done, trying to placate the national God while they hoard and prostituted themselves to every other God and walking in injustice, not letting the worship of the one true God change and affect the way that they treated other people, injustice and unrighteousness, but being full of injustice and walking in complete hypocrisy. And God has said, the jig is up, your worship is a sham, I'm done. You have rejected who I am and destruction is coming on you. That's why he says, I'm gonna send you into exile beyond Damascus as Assyria comes to conquer you. I have to let 
my justice and my righteousness rain down on you for your disobedience and for your fake worship of me. But even in that, God still points to what true worship of him is. He's continually, to show, he's ten, continually being good to show how good he is to them and how good he truly is and how worthy of worship he really is. Did you see what he said? How he points to what true worship of, of the one true God is? In verse 24, he says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. This verse is so powerful because it's pointing to who God really is. That all the things, the very things that Israel had completely rejected, the things that had become wormwood, the things that had fallen down to the earth that they had no part of, justice and righteousness are the things that God say need to permeate the life of people who truly will worship him. And the reason why this is so powerful is because what these words mean in the original language. The word for justice in Hebrew is the word mishpat. And what it means is it refers to the concrete actions that someone takes in order to correct injustice and to create righteousness. I mean, what a powerful definition. Concrete actions that someone takes in order to correct injustice and to create righteousness. This is who Israel was supposed to be. God set them apart as people that were supposed to walk in justice, to be a blessing to the nations. That, that those who would be treated with injustice, they would step in and they would take concrete actions to deal with that injustice so that righteousness could be created instead. But that's not what they did. It was spoiled among them and they oppressed the poor. They rejected the needy and they walked in injustice everywhere they went living totally for their own gain. But God is saying justice needs to come. And because you've rejected my justice and what I've called you to, then now my justice is gonna fall on you. The word for righteousness in the Hebrew is the word tzedakah. And here's what it means. It means to the standard of equitable relationships between people, no matter their social differences. So no matter what the social differences are. It's to bring us into equitable relationship. This is what God had created Israel to be. This is what he blessed them, the responsibility that they had. That in a world full of social differences, in a world full of all kinds of people, they were to be treated, treated with equality. To not be pushed aside or, or be degraded because they were created in the image of God. Israel was supposed to walk in righteousness, but instead, that was the last thing that they did. They let that fall down to the earth. They didn't treat anyone with equitable uh, you know, equality. They, they did everything for themselves. And so God is saying, my judgment is coming on you. And listen, I think when we hear this and we read all about Israel's judgment and all the destruction that they deserved, it's really easy for us to point the finger at them and see that because they put all their hope in this fake worship and practicing all the right things, yet holding their affections from God and spending it on everything else, it's easy for us to point the finger at them and see how they deserve the destruction, the doom, the judgment of God and miss 
that we deserve it just the same. We deserve God's judgment. How many times have I come in to worship and just gone through the motions? How many times have I put my hope in what I can accomplish for God and completely rejected that God wants my heart? I've come in here and I've sung songs of praise and worship to an almighty God and it still had bitterness in my heart towards someone who wronged me. How many times have I just given the bare minimum of my tithe, hoping that that will please God and, and, and be more focused on how I can build my kingdom instead of realizing that God's given me all that he's given me so that I can be gracious and can give generously so that orphans can have a home and so that the word of God can be spread to every people group and every nation all around the world. How many times have I come in here and acted like I'm so in love with God and yet I see other people that are different from me and I don't pursue them at all? And instead of walking in justice, I reject God and I put my hope in just the little things that I can do for him. And I think if you're honest, sometimes you're like me. We put our hope in what we can do for God and it's fake. It's fake, it's not true. God wants our hearts. He doesn't want our ritual acts of worship. He's not interested in us being able to accomplish great things religiously for him. He wants us to submit our heart to him. And the only way that we can do that the only way that we can come to that place is we have to trust in the gospel. We can't put our hope in these other things. We can't put our hope in what we accomplish for God because Jesus has something very serious to say to us when we do that. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, verse 21 through 23. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. God is not after our ability to practice things ritualistically towards him. He wants our heart. Not everyone who cries out and says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The only one who will is the one who seeks the will of the Father. And the will of the Father for you and me is that we would believe the gospel. This beautiful message that God would send his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, becoming a man and doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, perfectly fulfilling all the righteous requirements of God's law. And then he went to the cross, absorbing the full wrath of God for all of our injustice and taking the justice of God on himself. And then proving that he was God's son when on the third day after he absorbed the full wrath of God for all of our sin, for all of our injustice, for all of our brokenness, he rose again in victory, proving that he was who he said he was and that he is the one God who can make us righteous. Think about how beautiful this is. Even though we have been broken and have never been good enough ourselves. And we've gone to every single thing we could possibly think of to try and find rightness with God. We've gone to sex. We've gone to approval of peers. We've tried uh, materialism. We've tried all these things. We've even tried religion, but we're still left in our brokenness. God let justice run down on his son. God took concrete actions to correct our injustice, 
and to create righteousness by absorbing God's wrath in our place so that when I put my faith and trust in Jesus, he, I now have an equitable relationship with God. He who had no sin became sin for me so that in him, in Jesus, I might become the righteousness of God. So when I place my faith and trust in Jesus and not just cry out, Lord, Lord, but submit to his lordship in every area of my life, then the most incredible thing happens. I experience Sedekah, the righteousness of God. I have an equitable relationship with God. I become a son of Christ. I become a son of God and I have the same relationship with God as Jesus does as a son of God, a child of the King. Church family, what you and I so desperately need this morning is to let justice roll down on our lives like waters in righteousness, like an overflowing stream, filling up our dry riverbed by believing the gospel, that Jesus took concrete actions so that we wouldn't have to receive the wrath of God for our injustice, but righteousness could be created in us and we could have equal standing with God as an co-heir with Christ and be his child. We need to respond to the gospel this morning. We need to believe the gospel. And the best way for us to do that is to take the Lord's Supper so that we can remember the gospel and remember what Jesus did for us so that we could be brought into justice and righteousness. But before we do, we need to prepare our hearts for that. I know there are some of you watching at home that maybe you've, you've been involved in church your whole life, but you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life. Maybe you've cried out, you've, you've said the right prayers, you've tried to do the right things, but you've never truly yielded your heart to Jesus as King of your life. You've never put all of your affection on him. You've never declared him king of your life. And right now you need, to, you need to put your hope and faith in Jesus. There are others of you that are realizing you deserve the wrath of God, but Jesus stepped into your place and the Holy Spirit is saying to you right now, place your faith in Jesus, believe the gospel. So if that's you, I want you to text the word next step to the number 94253. And someone will reach out to you, a pastor will reach out to you at, and walk with you as you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Listen, God is so good, he loves you. He wants you to know him and that's why he sent his son, Jesus. So as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper and we sing this next song, let's let the Lord draw our hearts to him to repent and believe in the gospel and be finished and done with anything that's fake and serve him in justice and righteousness because of how he made a way for us to be his. Let's respond as we sing.